Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Over the past four years, we've had the opportunity to hear lectures on uh, the search for another Earth, the supermassive black hole at the galactic center, the runaway universe, and taking the universe's baby picture. So tonight, thanks to the continued generous support from LCOGTN, uh, we bring you the hidden universe revealed. Now, the talented group at Las Cumbres Observatory shares a passion for discovery and education with, with UCSB physics. And they've been in the news a lot recently uh, for, for the discovery of new worlds, new planets, and also for completing the installation of a telescope at Sedgwick Nature Preserve that some of the undergraduate classes at UCSB are using this very quarter. This has been a very exciting time for the group. So our speaker tonight, Robert Kennicutt, is the Plumian Professor of Astronomy and Experimental Philosophy at Cambridge University, where he directs the Institute for Astronomy. He's authored over 250 research articles and books, mainly on the physical processes that drive galaxy evolution. Um, he served as editor-in-chief of the premier astrophysics research journal. And I think he towers above many of his peers as a renowned mentor of young people in the, in the sciences. His career has been honored repeatedly, a Sloan Fellowship, the Heinemann Prize, the Gruber Cosmology Prize, election to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, an election to the National Academy of Sciences. Now, it's slightly ironic that his flight to the US was delayed, okay, by a cloud of volcanic ash. <laughs> Although not exactly the same chemically, clouds of soot and silicate dust in our galaxy, okay, actually hide much of the content from view. And Professor Kennicutt has used powerful telescopes, including the Herschel Space Observatory that was launched just a year ago, to basically see through this dust and see the hidden universe behind it. So tonight, he will share with us hot results on cool galaxies. Please welcome Professor Kennicutt. What I'd like to do tonight uh, is maybe a slightly different approach of talk to some that you've heard. Um, if you've been coming to these lectures regularly, you know that we live in an extraordinary uh, age of discovery in astronomy uh, at the this beginning of this uh, new millennium. Um, uh, discoveries of new planets, uh, recognition of dark energy, dark matter, and so on. And I really think, and many of my colleagues agree with me, that uh, there's no exaggeration to say that the pace of discovery, the profundity of the, some of these discoveries, uh, rivals that of the Copernican uh, Revolution 300 to 400 years uh, ago. Uh, but unlike that time where the, the, the scientific revolution took place over a period of about 150 years, here uh, the same pace is uh, happening over 10 to 20 years. It's absolutely extraordinary. Uh, now you can ask, uh, what are the reasons? Why now? What's so special about the time in uh, obviously brilliant scientists like Crystal and some others contribute. Um, and some of the answers, I think, are the same uh, as for many other fields 
uh, and uh, endeavors in life. For example, the computing revolution uh, has affected astronomies profoundly as it has other subjects. But one of the chief reasons, and the subject of tonight's talk, is that over the last 20 years or so, uh, we have expanded astronomy beyond the confines of the study of the light we can see and the radio emissions of the universe, fields, of course, that go back decades uh, to the other uh, reaches of the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, and tonight, what I really want to do is to give you a case study in how that revolution has been wrought in one particular subject. Uh, I've picked one uh, part of the spectrum, namely the infrared. I'll describe what the infrared is in a moment for those who need a reminder. And as it applies to one particular subject, namely the formation and evolution of galaxies, and in particular, how stars are born in the universe, how essentially the birth of, of stars and, and their contribution to the birth and evolution of galaxies. Um, so we're, we're going to weave those two threads together uh, in, in this lecture. And although I, don't, I cannot promise a profound takeaway, I'm not going to present an individual revolutionary discovery hot off the presses in the last year or two, what I hope you'll come away with through this example is a better understanding of how, the, how our un, deeper understanding of the universe and the physics of the universe uh, advances, uh, and why perhaps how it has advanced so radically in our lifetime. So I'm going to begin and spend a little bit of time talking about the infrared and this uh, volcanic ash in the universe, uh, and then we'll talk about galaxies and kind of tie these together. So here's a diagram, uh, sort of a textbook diagram of the various types of light, wavelengths of light, ranging from the shortest wavelengths, highest frequencies, gamma rays, x-rays, through to the radio. Um, here, this little band right in here, this little slice that's been expanded, is the one octave of light frequencies that we can see. And as you notice, actually, we, our eyes are actually sensitive to this wavelength of light through the perception of color. What I'm going to be talking about, though, is the light just longward in wavelength, or shortward in frequency, uh, of, of the of visible light we can see. It's called the infrared. It actually spans 10 octaves, not the one octave uh, that uh, we see, but a much larger range, um, and, uh, and, and one that has revolutionized uh, our, our understanding, and from the uh, title of the talk, has actually revealed uh, a whole range of phenomena in the universe that were uh, invisible to us uh, uh, only a, a couple of decades ago. Uh, the infrared was discovered by uh, a Brit, William Herschel, around 1800. Um, he extended an experiment uh, done by uh, Sir Isaac Newton in which he had used a prism to actually show that visible light was uh, dispersed into wavelengths. But as shown in this old uh, painting, what Herschel did, he took the experiment one step further. Um, he was, uh, I believe as the story goes, in his laboratory, shining light with a prism and studying it. But uh, by accident or design, I'm not sure, at some point uh, happened to pass his hand on uh, beyond the red end of the spectrum that he could see with his eyes. And notice that even though the table beyond the red was black, uh, when he passed his hand there, he could feel the heat of the sunlight there. And then uh, in follow-up, as shown here, 
by uh, ingeniously putting together a set of thermometers could actually measure that irradiance and actually make an estimate of how much of the sun's uh, light, uh, which passes through the atmosphere at least, is emitted in the infrared. So we've known about the infrared uh, for a long time, but our ability to actually observe the dark sky in the infrared has actually been hampered uh, for, uh, has taken uh, centuries to actually realize. I'll just m mention anecdotally that for us, uh, among other things, this is the same William Herschel, by the way, who discovered the planet Uranus. That's what he's known uh, best for. Actually, two telescopes have been named in his honor. One, a four-meter telescope on uh, La Palma in the Canary Islands, and very recently launched uh, one year ago, yes, uh, sorry, one year ago tomorrow, a space observatory, the Herschel Space Observatory, that uh, will figure prominently in the talk, uh, uh, the, the largest telescope uh, ever launched into space, at least for civilian purposes, I should say, and uh, a, a state-of-the-art infrared observatory, quite appropriately named after Herschel. So, what is the infrared? So, uh, as I say, it's invisible light, um, but it, uh, you can sense it still. Our, our bodies do not have the ability to see it. Uh, some reptiles have ability, and so on. Animals actually can see a limited range. We can't, but we do feel it as heat. And uh, here, and uh, I, so I cannot show you photographs uh, uh, made with ordinary cameras of infrared light, but I, uh, you can build cameras, the same kinds of cameras that fly on telescopes. Uh, you can actually use them uh, to image everyday objects in the infrared. And thanks to the uh, Spitzer Science Center in Pasadena, here are a few examples. Uh, this is what uh, people look like in the infrared. These are the same kinds of cameras that people use to conduct energy audits of houses. Uh, there's heat sensing devices. His eyes are dark because the uh, sunglasses are opaque to infrared radiation, but people glow uh, there. Uh, the reason being that there is a, the physical laws are such that um, there's a relationship between the temperature of an emitting of an object, which it emits light, and the uh, wavelength at which that light is uh, radiated. Uh, visible light, as you see from looking into these light bulbs, is from objects with temperatures of thousands of degrees, but um, every object in the universe emits light at some wavelength, and it turns out for the infrared, uh, that tends to be objects with temperatures with it from about 10 degrees above absolute zero through room temperature up to maybe 1,000 degrees. Um, uh, here, uh, we'll do, play a little quiz here. We'll start with an easy one. Uh, what are we looking at here in the infrared? I'll show you a visible photograph in a minute. All right. Start with a really easy one, just like an exam, right? So it's uh, just a hair dryer. So here's the hair dryer, and here's the air coming out of the hair dryer. Here's, a here's one you'll never get unless you've gone to the website. So here's the opposite. Here's a blank floor. Any idea? I'm going to show you the infrared image in a minute. Anyone want to make a guess? Yeah, I think somebody, I heard the answer maybe. It was footprints. So this was uh, someone at the Science Center had a barefoot person stand on the floor for a few minutes, walk off. After the person had left, the footprints were left behind. So think of infrared as heat radiation, if you like. Um, now, uh, why would we, so what is it that the infrared offers uh, about studying any kind of object, whether it's here on the Earth or in the sky, that you cannot get with a visible wavelength telescope, like say one of Wayne's uh, Rosings telescopes at Las Cumbres, uh, tuned to the visible light. 
And there are a couple of uh, chief advantages, and one is summarized in this slide, and that is that the infrared has great penetrating power in, to see through particulate dust. Um, uh, here are, uh, is a very old picture, I think from the 1950s, of the San Jose Valley, basically Silicon Valley, as viewed from a Lick Observatory, Mount Hamilton. Uh, you know it has to be the 50s, because it doesn't look like this wild at all nowadays. But uh, this was taken on a hazy day in yellow light, and when you look even in the near-infrared, uh, that haze goes away. The reason is that the wavelengths of light are larger than the particles of stuff that are making the haze, and so they shine right through it. And the same thing works. I'm now going to show you a couple of examples from astronomy of the same principle at work. This is the, uh, a piece of the famous Orion Nebula star-forming region uh, viewed in the visible uh, when you uh, image the same area in the infrared. Notice that uh, here you see the beautiful nebula and a handful of stars, for example, the tra famous trapezium of stars. Um, but from the visible image, you would have no idea that, in fact, lurking within this cloud is a cluster of 1, 000, another 1,000 stars. And when you go to the infrared, uh, looking at a small region of this cluster, those stars appear. So penetrating power is one of the advantages. Um, uh, here, I couldn't help. This is one of my favorite images. All oh, these talks are always an excuse to put up my favorite images. This is one that Andrea Getz may have shown in her talk. It's a photograph of the Milky Way. Uh, imaged from uh, Cerro Pachon in Chile, and you uh, see the, you notice the stars in the Milky Way, but uh, this uh, crisscross of dust. Uh, before you ask, yes, this is a laser being shot out of this uh, telescope for adaptive optics uh, guiding, but the main point is to show you that the Milky Way is crisscrossed with material. At first glance, this looks like holes in the galaxy, places where there are no stars, but no, it's quite the opposite. In fact, it's, uh, it's very dense and thick clouds uh, of gas uh, that are, which have embedded within them uh, dust. Um, in studying even our own galaxy, uh, this dust uh, completely, almost completely compromises our ability to map the true shape uh, of the Milky Way and its extent, or even to see its center. In fact, I, this is an all-sky, this is a fisheye lens composite image of the Milky Way wrapping around the entire sky. I haven't marked the center of the Milky Way here, and I would defy you to tell where the center is, and that's because there's so much obscuration from this dust, uh, you can't see it. Now, um, uh, you might think that interstellar space being a near vacuum actually would not be very opaque to dust, but in fact, uh, the concentration of dust in interstellar space is absolutely enormous by any ground-based standards. Indeed, the gas itself and the dust that's mixed with it is at very low pressure, but when you look through trillions of miles of the stuff as you are in this image, it becomes very dark. Um, and in fact, a space is an incredibly uh, dirty place. And so I tried to think of how to express that, and one way to do that is to give you a, a very simple analogy uh, to the dust, for example, the volcanic dust uh, from the volcano and so on. Um, if you go to the web, as I did, you can look up the uh, standard, the OSHA, the Occupational Safe Safety and Health uh, Standard 
uh, for a worker working in a dusty environment, for example, a coal miner uh, or, a, or a carpenter. And what you find is that the OSHA uh, maximum allowable level of dust in the air is about three parts per million. It varies a little bit depending on the composition of the dust and so on. What that means is if you're working in a coal mine and you're kicking up more than three parts per million of coal dust or silicate dust, they have to wear rest the workers have to wear respirators uh, to do it. So how does that compare to interstellar space? Well, for the gas in the, uh, between the stars in galaxies, in the universe, the concentration isn't three parts per million, it's 10,000 parts per million. Incredibly uh, dense. Um, to give you some idea how thick that is, if we would actually fill this room with dust with the same concentration as you find in the interstellar medium, obviously denser in this room, but with a uh, one to 100 por proportion, um, uh, and, and essentially dispersed it in the air, you, none of you would be seeing me right now. It'd be a voice coming in the dark. None of you would see the person sitting in front of you. And in fact, none of you would even see the hand in front of your face. And maybe if you held your fingers within about an inch or two, uh, you might dimly see. It's that thick. Or, alternatively, if we were to precipitate out, let all that dust settle out onto the floor, uh, you can ask how deep a layer it would be. Well, it depends a lot on, uh, on what kind of dust, but it's the same stuff that collected in my dorm room when my freshman year in college, or the stuff that collects in the bag of your, uh, of your vacuum cleaner. It would be a layer several inches deep that you'd have to wade through. Uh, so, it's, uh, so, in other words, uh, space is uh, a very, very uh, dusty place and so this obscuration is important. So this is the Milky Way invisible light, but the punchline is uh, all we have to do is observe at the nearest wa wavelengths maybe three or four or five times longer than visible light, and when we look there, the same piece of sky, uh, that's what you see. Uh, the dust essentially goes away, and you can see there's the center of the Milky Way, and wrapping around the side, you see the uh, true structure. So that's uh, one advantage of the infrared. Um, another advantage is that if you go to even longer wave, uh, wavelengths, between about 10 and 100, oh, 10, uh, and 100 uh, micrometers, or uh, this is now uh, about uh, oh, 20 to 200 times longer than green light, uh, then just like the people, the hair dryers and so on, that dust begins to glow. So here again is the Milky Way and visible light, the center of our Milky Way. And whereas at short infrared wavelengths, you see the starlight, if you go to longer wavelengths, you actually see, begin to see the dust glowing brightly. And so in the infrared, we not only can have an obscuration-free, uh, essentially eliminate the effects of the dust, but by tuning to another wavelength, we can actually image that dust. Um, and that's particularly important because many of these most uh, dusty regions, these concentrations you see, every one of these corresponds to a get very dense gas cloud or dust cloud uh, in which stars are forming. These clouds are maternity wards for stars, and, uh, um, uh, and, and you can probe them more powerfully in the infrared than anywhere else. Um, here is another example I'll just show. I actually meant to take these slides out, but I, since they're up, uh, here is the Sombrero Galaxy viewed with the Hubble Space Telescope. 
Uh, you can see why the name is Sombrero. It has this very thick disk of gas and, of course, obscuring dust. If we observe this in the infrared, instead, um, everything reverses. Dark becomes bright. The dust glows. You're seeing that band of dust. This is the stuff. And, in fact, what looked to be a disk of dust is actually we now know is actually a ring. And then I think one more example I'll talk about Spitzer Space Telescope in the moment. Famous Whirlpool Galaxy. Here's what it looks like in visible light. Bright stars. Then you see this dark silhouette. It's this dust actually makes the beautiful structure. It creates the contrast, the beautiful highlighting uh, that makes the beautiful spiral arms. If you observe in long infrared wavelengths, suddenly everything here that appears dark appears bright. It's an almost negative image of what you've uh, seen before. And clearly, we can study in all of its beauty not only the fact that dust is there and measure how much it is there is, but actually study its structure and, uh, in fact, not only study the star formation, but understand the dynamical processes that led to the formation of those stars. That's sort of a quick summary of what's going to follow in the talk. Um, so I tried to give you a feel in one sense of how much dust there is by this analogy, right, to uh, obscuration in this room. Another way is to ask uh, oh, how much of the starlight in the entire universe is actually affected uh, by this uh, dust. And the answer is about half, and that's illustrated here. This, uh, this is mainly a plot for the uh, cognoscenti in the audience, the physicists and the astrophysicists that Tommaso talked about a little earlier. It's actually uh, uh, showing the distribution of energy of the cosmic background in, uh, uh, in wavelengths from millimeter to ultraviolet. Uh, it's essentially looking at the whole light, essentially adding up all of the light of the, the sky. And what you see is uh, it's plotted as a function of frequency or wavelength. And you see two big peaks. One is this peak represents all of the visible starlight and also the ultraviolet light uh, from galaxies in the universe. But you see over here another peak almost as big, and this is, represents the light that the dust took away. Essentially, this peak is half of what it would be without the dust, and it re-radiates over here. So averaged over the entire universe, essentially half is hidden. Moreover, that obscuration varies a lot in the universe. It's not always half. Uh, for example, in viewing, trying to see the center of our Milky Way, only one part in a billion of the light reaches us. That's a thicker curtain than most of the curtains in your windows at home. And in uh, many of the most actively star-forming galaxies in the universe, uh, only one part in a 1,000 or 10,000 uh, gets out. So, in fact, this uh, by uh, studying the universe in the infrared, we're opening up not only half of the starlight overall, uh, we're discovering entirely new phenomena that were hidden from view before. And I'll try to show you some examples of that uh, in a moment. Um, so, uh, before we finish this introduction, let's ask another obvious question. Okay, if the infrared is such a, a fabulous a tracer of uh, the universe, star formation in the universe and dust, uh, why uh, is not Wayne Rosing uh, building a network of infrared telescopes uh, to study the sky? Why are most ground-based telescopes tuned instead to visible light, and actually you can do the near-infrared? Two reasons for it. Uh, one is, unfortunately, most of that infrared radiation uh, does not penetrate through the Earth's uh, atmosphere. It's blocked. 
Uh, that's shown in this diagram. Here's the electromagnetic spectrum, and these lines represent the opacity of the universe, the opaque regions and the transparent regions. Uh, in our sky, uh, our atmosphere lets the sunlight in, but the heat uh, is trapped. It's not allowed, uh, does not escape. You've heard about this before. This is the famous greenhouse effect that contributes to keeping us uh, warmer than Earth warmer than it would otherwise be and leads, is now increasing and producing global warming and so on. Uh, the greenhouse effect is the trapping of the heat from the ground by our atmosphere, but by the same token, that same uh, trapping uh, process uh, prevents a light from beyond the Earth, infrared uh, light from infra objects beyond the Earth uh, from passing through the atmosphere. So. Uh, even without any other problems, it's uh, extremely difficult to observe the sky infrared wavelengths. But that's only, you see, problem number one. Uh, that, that, that actually pales in comparison to problem two. And so even for the few smidgens of wavelength frequency ranges that do penetrate the atmosphere, it's still extremely difficult to observe uh, the universe at these wavelengths, and it's because uh, not only does not much light get through the atmosphere, but everything around you on the ground is at room temperature is glowing brightly in the infrared. Now, I know of no astronomers would bring a hairdryer into observatory dome, but the astronomer glows, uh, their feet glow, I guess, I guess you could deal with that, but, but the dome glows, these are all infrared heat images, the telescope glows, the dome glows, the sky glows, um, everything glows. Uh, one of the founders of infrared astronomy, a grand old man, Professor George Rieke in Arizona, once tried to explain to me, I spent most of my life as a visible wavelength astronomer, tried to explain to me what it's like to try to observe the thermal infrared from the ground. And he said, basically imagine observing with a conventional visible light telescope, trying to observe a state, faint star, but having to observe at noon um, with the sun shining down the, into your telescope, with the telescope on fire, with the dome on fire, <laughs> and with somebody pointing a blowtorch onto your camera. <laughs> now, I think he exaggerated. I think the blowtorch part was a bit going a bit far there. may not be quite that bad. But the rest is, in fact, an understatement. Uh, the interference of that light is absolutely horrible. And so, until the advent of space astronomy, uh, infrared astronomy, only a handful of the very hottest, basically, sources in the sky uh, were discovered. So, uh, solution to problems one and two is, of course, get above the atmosphere. And so, most of the progress in this field has been thanks to a whole armada of infrared telescopes. Here are four that I'm not going to talk about much. Uh, tell these uh, three all have conducted or are conducting IRAS, Akari, and WISE all-sky surveys in the infrared. And then a decade ago, the ISO mission from Europe began making images, uh, resolved images, uh, for the first time. But the field, uh, the real revolution in the field has come and is coming uh, as we speak from two uh, great observatories. The Spitzer Space Telescope is one of the four NASA great observatories, like the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, it's a rather small telescope, about 80 centimeters, about 30-inch mirror across, uh, but it fly, it's in orbit around the sun, away from the Earth, 
um, and with a very ingenious cooling system that uh, for the first six years of its life kept the telescope operating at a temperature of only five degrees uh, Kelvin, five degrees centigrade above absolute zero, about minus 400 and oh, uh, minus 440 or so Fahrenheit. Um, it is now warmed up. It's run out of uh, cryogen, but it's still taking data in a warm phase, named after uh, Lyman, Professor Lyman Spitzer uh, from uh, Princeton University. And as I mentioned earlier, um, just on uh, one uh, a year ago tomorrow, uh, the European Space Agency launched uh, the Herschel Space Observatory. This telescope is, has a three and a half meter mirror, about 140 inches across. As I said earlier, uh, at least the, as, as, uh, the press releases say, the largest telescope looking away from the Earth that's ever been launched, um, and uh, designed to look uh, at uh, uh, infrared wavelengths that are actually longer. Spitzer operates from wavelengths, uh, as you saw in the last slide, from about three microns uh, to 160 micrometers. And Herschel essentially takes over where Herschel, sorry, where uh, Spitzer left off. Um, and because it's a larger mirror, it can make uh, sharper images at any one given wavelength. So I'll show you results from both. Now, I want to spend most of the second half of the talk uh, talking about uh, Spitzer and Herschel observations of galaxies and what we've learned from them and as well as from IRAS and so on, the missions before. But I thought I would share a few pretty pictures uh, from Spitzer and Herschel of other objects to just give you a taste of the diversity of science uh, that you can do. So, for example, um, this is a, an image with, here above with the Spitzer Space Telescope and below uh, invisible wavelengths of a star-forming cloud in the galaxy, as you see IC 1396, invisible wavelengths that appears as a very dark cloud. Uh, we know there's a very dense concentration of dust and gas here, um, and you see evidence of one or two stars associated, but these are actually, many of these are stars projected in front. When you image the same region uh, in the infrared, again, all of this dark material becomes bright. You're seeing the glowing dust, and lo and behold, uh, you see a whole set now of stars, and these are actually uh, proto-stars. Nearly every one is a star and probably a solar system in the process of forming. I won't say much more. It's sort of a, just an example, but it gives you a taste of the power of these instruments. Here is uh, one of the latest images from Herschel. I have to say I was handicapped in preparing this talk because uh, nearly all of the beautiful images that uh, Herschel has taken in the roughly last six months since it began observation, regular observations were embargoed until uh, late Thursday last week. So I've just been able to pull a few slides to show you. But this is an image of uh, the Southern Milky Way, basically in the constellation of the Southern Cross. And uh, what you're seeing is the, essentially the interstellar medium. It's a complex of uh, star-forming clouds, those of you remember the famous Hubble pictures of the Eagle Nebula can see these pillars of creation, as they're often called. These are, again, with uh, young forming stars at the tips of them. And uh, the entire, much of the Milky Way is being mapped uh, with this instrument and revealing in unprecedented detail uh, uh, the, this penetrating through all this obscuration and revealing the structure of the gas in our galaxy and uh, essentially making a complete inventory of star-forming regions. Um, here is another uh, uh, 
basically star forming, I guess we could call it star forming region observed up close and personal. It is a series of Spitzer images of one of the brightest stars in the sky, Fomalhaut. Um, when it's imaged in the infrared, uh, you find that the image of the star has something with it. It's, here's Fomalhaut itself, but in fact, in the infrared, there is a dust, uh, uh, a, a dust torus or a dust uh, disk surrounding it, um, in which uh, we believe is associated with a uh, planetary system. This is uh, alternately called a, a, a debris disk or protoplanetary disk. And stunning confirmation for that hypothesis uh, arrived a little more than a year ago. Many of you may have seen this news story, uh, imaging, coronagraphic imaging with the Hubble Space Telescope. So this is a camera that blacks out the light of Fomalhaut itself. It's a naked eye star, one of the brightest stars you can imagine with Hubble. Uh, all of this striation is scattered light from the star itself. But um, what was found was a spot uh, surrounding uh, this star. And when uh, the repeat images were made of the star, that spot moved with an orbit that is consistent with an orbit of a planet would have at that distance. So this was one of the first uh, actual direct imaging of a planet around another star. Uh, and all sort of hinted at by those Spitzer observations. Finally, uh, I don't have enough time today to talk about the richness, the spectroscopic richness, the diagnostics, all, both Spitzer and the Herschel telescopes carry with them spectrometers, essentially devices like Herschel's prism break the light into its component wavelengths. So I'll just show this one slide of the Orion Nebula, recent observations with the Herschel Hi-Fi instrument a heterodyne spectrometer that essentially is looking at the, uh, the, the, the uh, distribution of light as a function of wavelength. And just like a DNA print of a human being or a fingerprint, these spectral lines are uh, fingerprints of various chemical substances in the universe. And I know you can't read from where you are, and I can barely read myself. There are features due to water, sulfur dioxide, ammonia, um, a whole host, and essentially with these tele, uh, this telescope in particular, we're going to work out the chemistry, the chemical composition of these clouds in incredible detail, and the composition of these disks out of which the planets are forming, and so on. Um, so again, just a little a taste of uh, what you can learn uh, uh, from these instruments. Now, I want to move then to the second thread and actually talk about how these observations what they have taught us about uh, star formation in galaxies and the formation of evolution of galaxies themselves. I begin with a slide I thought you, just to, again, of introduction for those of you uh, would appreciate is sort of the vital statistics of a particular nearby galaxy. This is a beautiful Spitzer Space Telescope image of M Messier 101. Um, I've chosen it because it's a, if we could see the Milky Way from a large distance, uh, it would look very similar probably to M101. It's very similar in mass and so on, maybe a little bit bigger than our own Milky Way. It's a long way away. And abs uh, it's a relatively nearby galaxy, but it's 23 million light years away. Uh, that's, uh, that's about 130 million trillion miles away, a large number even by bank standards these days. <laughs> It's uh, similar in type to the Milky Way. It's, uh, it contains about 100 billion stars, 
So a small number, I guess, nowadays by bank standards. Those stars, uh, some of them are, the oldest are about 13 billion years. The youngest are forming as we see. And in fact, all the red you see, this is far infrared uh, infra emission, all of these red blobs are sites where stars are being born before our very eyes. Um, and if you want to know what it's made of, uh, well, 85% of it, as with almost all galaxies, is this mysterious uh, non-baryonic dark matter. Not sure what it is. We're not going to talk about that tonight. But of the rest, uh, the so-called baryons, the hydrogen, helium, the normal chemicals we know about, um, about a third of it, well, two-thirds, is in the form of stars, and about a third is in the form of interstellar gas. Uh, and to the extent that this gas is the raw material to form new stars, think of the fuel tank of M101 as being about one-third on the fuel gauge, right? It's used up about two-thirds of the fuel, but it's still got lots of fuel left to make new stars. In the Milky Way, it's about one, Milky Way is about, that fuel gauge is about one-fifth to one-quarter full for comparison. Um, now, M101 uh, is only but once uh, on Hubble's classification scheme of galaxies will be known as an SC, and we know from Hubble's time, and actually before, that galaxies uh, fall in a sequence of types that I'll show you later is actually an evolutionary sequence. It's a sequence of star formation and a sequence of fuel gauge, if you like. Um, uh, and one of the goals of the work I do uh, is to try to understand both observationally and then help the theoreticians understand how this sequence came into being. We have a very good theory for the formation, well, for the evolution of stars, but we have the theory, our understanding of the formation and evolution of galaxies is really at an embryonic state. In fact, and even the formation of stars is a field in which much uh, needs to be uh, learned. So one of the questions we're trying to address is the origin of this Hubble sequence. Uh, what is it about that led the Milky Way to be a spiral galaxy and other objects, M87, to be an elliptical, for example. Um, the, uh, I can't help to make an aside. I also, as you heard, do cosmology part-time, and so I like to delve into that. Here's a slide I'm sure David Spurgel showed you last year from the WMAP project that shows, a, a, well, in the words of Stephen Hawking, a brief history of time. Um, the universe, by the way, I was asked at my last talk, why is the universe bell-shaped? Um, and the answer is, no, this is artistic license. Uh, it has nothing to do with the uh, shape of the universe. And don't ask me about this. It's a very complicated answer. So here's the history of the universe from the Big Bang uh, to the present. Uh, we think that uh, everything we see formed in an explosion that we can now precisely date uh, to about a little more than 13 and a half billion years ago. Um, that... Uh, 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 initially, the universe was quite smooth, but after it underwent uh, a so-called inflationary expansion, uh, that smoothness was not perfect. Uh, there were slight imperfections in the smoothness of the gas. It was all gas, uh, uh, essentially elementary particles at that time. And there were slight uh, variations in density just due to the uh, quantum nature of the universe. Um, and over time, those because the little denser regions have a little more gravity than their neighbors, they gradually accreted material around them, from around them, and grew, uh, first very slightly. Um, we think that, uh, and, we, and we have verified that, of course, with the famous images of the cosmic microwave background that David uh, showed you, which actually showed 
the state of these fluctuations in cosmic sound waves about a, half, a little less than half a million uh, years after the Big Bang. We think, but have not yet observed, that the nuggets, the first seeds of today's galaxies, probably formed, oh, within a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, during a period that's called the Dark Ages, where the universe was opaque, um, those seeds then, as the quantum fluctuations grew and accreted with one another, and uh, we all today, with Hubble and other telescopes, can see uh, the first galaxies, uh, the first complete galaxies, and pieces falling together in galaxies about a billion years, a little less than a billion years after the Big Bang, and then the structure grew uh, after that. I don't, this would be another talk, and I can't really belabor this. Um, this evolution, much of it can be simulated nowadays on supercomputers, and the progress in the subject has been stunning. And in one particular uh, uh, instance, to me, uh, remarkable, and that is uh, these, uh, these simulations of this condensation of material in the universe predicts beautifully reproduces the filamentary distribution of galaxies in the universe. This is a time lapse showing a very large region of a universe uh, uh, containing millions of galaxies. Uh, and so you're just seeing the distribution of the galaxies themselves and the gas between the galaxies in the universe, so-called large-scale structure. Um, but what, to me, has been amazing, and I'd say a long, uh, a, a very a slow epiphany for me, is that those same cosmological simulations that produce, can reproduce the structure of the universe, if you zoom in on them, on a small regions, actually produce objects with about the right masses, and about the right size, well, the right masses at least, of galaxies today. In other words, a byproduct of this cos theory of cosmolo inflationary cosmology um, is that you get as an added benefit the foundation of a theory for galaxy evolution, in particular the properties of uh, dark matter in galaxies. But it's not perfect. Um, although it produces galaxies in about the right numbers and the right distribution, the right, uh, right distribution of masses and so on, there is yet to be a simulation that I believe that can make something that looks like M101 or this. Uh, and the reason is that building a galaxy uh, is a lot more complicated than gravitational attraction of dark matter. The gas has to condense, the gas has to cool, the gas has to form into stars. Uh, those stars, uh, many of them blow up, eject energy back into the galaxy, disperse the star formation, and so on and so forth. And this whole area is sometimes falls under the term gastrophysics. Um, my French colleagues abhor this term. Uh, once again, the English, uh, the Brits, and the Americans are stealing gastronomy uh, from them. This has nothing to do with digestion. It has to do with the gas processes uh, that make uh, galaxies. And, uh, and, uh, but this is the cutting edge of the subject. Uh, it's the subject I work on. And I'm happy to say that the astronomy astrophysics group at University of California, Santa Barbara, is uh, at the cutting edge as well. It's one of the world-class groups, uh, several people, including Crystal, who are studying these things. So uh, the, what I'd like to do in the, 
the, the rest of the talk is try to give you some sense on how infrared observations in particular, when combined with others, can give you some clues into these, this largely unsolved problem. So what follows is basically a progress report. Um, the subject has advanced tremendously, not only, whoops, from the uh, advances of the Spitzer Space Telescope, but also with measurements in the ultraviolet, large ground-based surveys like Sloan, so on and so forth. And um, the progress, as with much of the rest of astronomy, has been utterly astounding in the last a few years. Um, the work, my connection over the last decade, has largely, although I was brought up as a visible wavelength astronomer, I was draft given a battlefield promotion about 10 years and have been leading to actually three large collaborations on the Spitzer and Herschel Space Telescopes. Most, many of the pictures you've been seeing uh, come from a Spitzer survey called the Singh survey. This was uh, essentially a survey of 75 galaxies in our nearby universe uh, covering the full range of properties, uh, measuring them not only in the infrared but also the ultraviolet, x-rays, radio, and so on to try to quantify the star formation properties and the dust, uh, the, the, the dust and gas properties of these objects. So a little advertisement. This actually comes from a three-by-five post, three-by-four poster, uh, which uh, uh, we, we, we still can probably find, uh, fetch up some extra copies of. Um, uh, the extension to this project is a survey called Kingfish on the Herschel uh, Space Observatory. It's observing essentially the same galaxies, uh, but with much higher sp spatial resolution in the far infrared. Unfortunately, our data are just arriving for that. I had hoped I could show you lots of hot results from that. And you've, I'll show you a couple pictures, but uh, uh, you'll have to invite me back in 20 years or something. I'll tell you about the rest of that. Um, okay, so what do you learn? Uh, one way, so I want to give you a little better feel of uh, how, what you can learn from galaxies in the infrared. And I think one way to do that is actually show you images of galaxies taken at different infrared wavelengths. As I said at the beginning of the talk, the uh, range, the, the, the wavelength range in the infrared is much larger than the visible. Uh, 10 octaves instead of one, a factor of uh, basically 1,000 in wavelength. And uh, that, what that means is there's not one kind of infrared radiation. Uh, the different parts of the infrared actually carry very different kinds of information. And when you make images or take spectra of galaxies or stars in those different wavelength regions, you see completely different things. And I'm going to show you that in a minute. And uh, just let me bring this uh, little, uh, I'm going to actually show you images of M81, another favorite uh, amateur galaxy, uh, first in the near-infrared part, uh, wavelengths of a few uh, micrometers. Then I'll show you a wavelength of eight micrometers, and then uh, the so-called far-infrared. Uh, I'll show you a couple images there. As you notice, what this shows is for one of our galaxies, well, not one of our, M82, shows you what the infrared energy of that galaxy looks like. And you notice there are several features. There's sort of this declining region of the spectrum. Here, most of the light is dominated by stars. Far in the, uh, farther in the infrared, uh, you see a very smooth spectrum. This is, I'll show you in a minute, I'll explain. This is sort of the volcanic ash part of the spectrum. In the middle, this very choppy molecular feature dominated spectrum. And as you'd expect, you learn completely different things by observing these parts of the spectrum. So let's, pictures are worth many words here. So before I start with the infrared, I'll introduce the galaxy, what it looks like in the visible, 
Here's M81, one of the nearest uh, galaxies, uh, large galaxies to our own, beautiful spiral arms. Uh, young, all of these arms in the visible blue trace young stars. Notice all this dark stuff, all this uh, striations, that's the interstellar dust again, uh, highlighting, making the image as beautiful as it is. So, the next image I'm going to show is a, as best as I could arrange the same orientation and same scale, M81, but observed in the near-infrared with Spitzer. So it's shown here. So quite a few differences. We'll go back and forth. The first thing is, notice the dark stuff is gone. We're penetrating through all that dust. But also, uh, to be honest about it, it's a pretty dull-looking image compared to what we just saw. And that's the loss of the silhouetting. That's how important the silhouetting of the dust is. Yeah, what we're seeing, by and large, is old starlight. There's a little bit of dust, a few dust clouds here, but virtually everything you're seeing is our old stars. And actually, this is very close to being a map of the mass, the weight of stars in this galaxy. So you can use images like this to study the true structure of the stars, the distributions of stars and galaxies. And one of my students, Sarah Kendall, did a PhD thesis on just that. Now... This is near-infrared, 3.6 micrometers. Now, the next, I'm just going to double the wavelength. I'm going to go from 4 micrometers to 8, uh, only one octave. We're going to go from C to high C, but, um, well, C to high D, I guess, uh, to be exact about it. The, uh, but now, we're going to shift from the starlight part of the spectrum to the part where we see some of the dust. And, lo and behold, completely different. So now there's still a little starlight in here, but you're seeing dust, essentially emission of dust. Now, just as different regions of the spectrum have very different character, it turns out that uh, depending on where you look in the infrared, even in the dust, you see different kinds of dust. So, in fact, uh, this is the part of the spectrum where the emission look, is dominated by molecular bands, and we now know that this emission is from a class of molecules called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Let me show you a chemist's diagram. Here are examples of those molecules. They're very small hydrocarbon chains, benzene, things like that. Um, uh, uh, there are lots of pHs in your everyday life. Uh, the gunk that comes out of the tailpipe of your, uh, your car, uh, if you haven't uh, had it tuned up in a while and your catalytic converter isn't doing so well, is PAH. Uh, if you have a fireplace and you periodically have to, or a or backyard barbecue, and you have to scrape the black stuff off the side, that's uh, PAH. Uh, so I will use the term gunk uh, just because it's easier to pronounce uh, than that. I may occasionally lapse into PAH, but uh, this stuff's very black, and it absorbs about a third, represents uh, up to a third of the infrared light. So this stuff, all these little, tiny little molecules, they are very absorbent in the universe. If I go a factor of three longer in wavelength in infrared, uh, from, you see now it looks kind of the same, but suddenly the appearance is quite different. Let's go back to the green again. So this is eight microns dust, and then if you go three times longer wavelength, uh, this is still dust emission, but obviously the structure is completely different. Unlike all that filamentary material, there's still filamentary emission, but now you see all these knots. And every one of these knots is a region in which stars are forming. Um, and this is another type of dust. These, this is the emission of 
makes up most of the weight of the dust, most of that one part in 100 is, and these are, uh, this dust we think is just a lot like dust here on Earth, uh, silicates, maybe some ices, uh, so on. Uh, and this makes up the bulk of the emission. And it is the light in this far infrared that is the primary tracer of star formation. Now, uh, I would love to show you a Spitzer uh, 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 image now going even longer in wavelength to see if it changes further. I will show you that. But unfortunately, what you see is this: the last image was at 24 microns. Here is Spitzer images of M81 at 70 and 160 microns, and it all goes fuzzy on us. And that's because it's only an 80-centimeter telescope. These are very long waves of light, and this is diffraction limited. It's as good an image as you can make with Spitzer. So in terms of the science we did, we made relatively little use of these images, at least for looking at the structure of galaxies. However, to the rescue has come the Herschel Space Observatory. Sorry, I can't show you the M81 image yet. Uh, uh, the comparable has not released yet, but uh, this is uh, the Whirlpool Nebula observed at the same wavelengths as these two images of M81. And what you see is because the Herschel mirror is four times larger uh, at any one frequency or wavelength, it makes images four times sharper. And in fact, you see even more segregation into star-forming clouds. So at these long wavelengths, so we can study at one time not only the star formation itself, the dust heated by young stars and measure the number of young stars, but we can study the gas by comparing wavelengths, actually study the gas out of which the stars are made as well. Okay, so... Uh, enough of the introduction. For the last part of the talk now, I'd like to narrow in from the sort of broad introduction and give you some sense of what we have learned, kind of jump forward without the intermediate steps, and talk about what, uh, how these uh, observations have enriched our understanding of how stars form in the universe. Um, and uh, one introductory example of the power, the, the real power in these infrared observations is not to use them by themselves, but to combine them with measurements in visible light or the ultraviolet. Here's another example of a galaxy from the Singh survey, NGC 6946, it's not a Messier object, uh, observed in visible light, actually in H-alpha emission, which highlights the, uh, the glow ultra, uh, from ultraviolet radiation of young forming stars. That gives us a measure of the star formation that is not blocked by dust. Um, but in this galaxy, dust absorbs about 80% of the young starlight, but you observe the same in, in the infrared, and you pick up the, 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 the energy that was lost. So the idea is neither of these approaches alone will give you a complete picture of the star formation. The dust absorbs some of the starlight, but not all of it. But if you can combine the two in various, uh, together in various combinations, you actually get a complete inventory for the first time in star, form uh, in star formation. This is a subject I've worked on for 25 years, and I can literally say that until about two years ago, uh, our estimate... Count, or inventories of how many stars are forming in these galaxies at best were uh, accurate to factors of two or three, often inaccurate in factors of ten or worse. Um, now, uh, by combining, uh, removing this effect of dust, we can get precisions of percent, tens of percent, but ten percent, fifteen percent, which for astronomers it may not sound good to you, but for astronomy is uh, fabulously precise. Uh, again, for the cognoscenti, uh, uh, Wayne uh, Rosing 
uh, told me to challenge the audience with a few hardcore uh, astrophysical journal plots uh, that I will do, Wayne. I will quiz you afterwards. Um, this uh, is a, just a quantitative illustration of this. These are star formation, uh, measuring the number of young stars forming in these galaxies. Sorry for the incoherent labels. This is measured from H-alpha, corrected for the effects of dust using other techniques, compared in the upper panels with estimates of how, much star, how many stars were forming from the infrared by itself. Here, the gunk, uh, 8 microns. Here, the 24 microns, the big uh, volcano dust uh, grains. You can see that you compare the two techniques, visible, uh, uh, corrected visible and infrared, that there's good correlation by and large, but the dispersion is very large. This scale is logarithmic, so the average error is about a factor of five, and there are individual galaxies where the dust underestimates the amount of star formation by a factor of 100. Um, so not terribly precise, a little bit better in the, longer, the larger dust uh, emission. But when you combine the two, you can calibrate mechanisms to combine the two, and in fact, that dispersion drops from factors of five to something like, in this case, about plus or minus 20, 25%. And in fact, these, this was a sample of objects that were sort of uh, the worst cases, and if you do a large sample of normal galaxies, in fact, the precision is better, more like 10%. So um, for the first time, we have precise tools with which we can unravel this story of star formation in galaxies. Um, now, when you do that, let's, uh, what do you learn? Well, what we find is there's a tremendous diversity of star-forming properties. I'll show you a plot of that a little bit later. But in, in basically, in a nutshell, what we see are two different types of star-forming galaxies, radically different properties. One are normal galaxies like our own M51 and M101 that I'll describe first. And then there's a whole new class of so-called starburst galaxies, including uh, the extreme examples only discovered recently in the infrared that are completely different and hold uh, the normal galaxies hold the key to understanding the evolution of galaxies. The second class, starbursts, hold the key probably to understanding the formation uh, and violent evolution of galaxies. So here are infrared images of four galaxies from the left end of Hubble's tuning fork to the other. When you look at elliptical galaxies, actually, they aren't forming many stars at all. And as you go along the spiral sequence, what you find is uh, the more uh, gas-rich, uh, smaller bulge you are, the more star formation you see. This had been seen first, actually, at other wavelengths, but we can now quantify these trends much better uh, with the addition of the infrared. Uh, here, again, for uh, those who gluttons for punishment is an a monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society plot. Uh, it shows, actually, for several hundred nearby galaxies how the star formation rate normalized to the mass of the galaxy, relative star formation changes with the brightness. And as galaxies get more massive and brighter, they're actually efficient forming stars less efficiently today. And the, you can make the same comparison of the gas supply. You can measure how much, essentially, the size of the fuel tank of cold gas. And what you find is all of the trends you see in star formation actually are mirrored in gas supply. In fact, it's this correlation that is causing uh, this one uh, may seem obvious, but actually needed to be demonstrated in a 
quantitative way. Um, so that's, uh, I'm skipping through because that's kind of old news uh, from building up over the last uh, 20 years or so. Um, but what was exciting was the recognition uh, in the last decade uh, to two decades of, in fact, a much more violent uh, a class of star-forming phenomena. Uh, they tend to occur in the centers of galaxies. Here's one example. This is a, a spiral NGC 1097. You see star formation in the visible uh, wavelengths uh, through large spiral arms, but you notice there's this intense uh, ring of star formation surrounding its uh, nucleus. Now, this is the region in the visible. You might be asking, why is he making such a fuss about this little extra star formation in the middle? Well, the reason is this is a visible wavelength picture, and uh, the amount, the dust is blocking about half the star formation out here. It's blocking about 99.9 .9 here. So the fact you can see this at all, uh, the visible wavelength image isn't giving you any impression at all of the true amount of star formation. When we look with Spitzer in the infrared, you see, in fact, that this central uh, star uh, forming a ring, in fact, is producing over half of the star formation in this entire galaxy, a tremendous concentration, far more than any we see in the disk of our Milky Way. And just to show you, here are some recent results uh, just off the presses posted today, in fact, uh, from our Herschel project. Uh, we even get sharper images in Herschel and just uh, trying to understand the uh, physical conditions that have, essentially what's happened is this bar in the galaxy has driven a large amount of gas in the center and it's a very intense and prolonged uh, episode of star formation. So. Um, this is an example of this second circumnuclear mode, but it is only the tip of the iceberg of that phenomenology. Um, uh, in fact, the most spectacular examples of these central so-called starbursts uh, occur in regions of gas that are so dense that you see essentially none of it in the visible, and it was only with the advent of infrared observations that we discovered these spectacular regions. And the prototype is actually a companion to M81. This is M82, a wide-field visible light image. Here's M82 in the visible. When you look at it up close, and the image in the visible, you can see something's going, happened to this galaxy. It just doesn't look right. Um, and you see lots of dust, but you don't see anything special going on in the center. However, when you image it with the Spitzer Space Telescope, you discover an extraordinary, in fact, a galaxy which in the infrared is one of the brightest objects in the sky, uh, rivaling uh, the planet Jupiter and, uh, and, and many solar system objects. In fact, uh, this object, uh, the M82, is so bright in the infrared, it was actually discovered first from ground-based telescopes, despite the blowtorch and all that. You could see it through there. Uh, so what's going on here? Here is a cleaned-up Spitzer image um, now, there is an intense uh, concentration of star formation within the inner 1,000 light years or so. It's forming as many stars as the entire Milky Way in a size, the region of uh, one large star forming region itself in the Milky Way. Something has happened to concentrate gas in its center. All of this stuff, this is, uh, is a gunk. This is uh, the PAH dust, pH dust, from gas that is being ejected, blown out. The star formation is so intense that the supernovae, the exploding stars, are actually uh, blowing 
the gas out of this galaxy, probably with enough speed for it to escape into intergalactic space. The subject is one of, uh, Crystal Martin's one of the world's experts on this uh, subject. Um, to the extent that uh, these PAHs are smoke, contains lots of PAHs. The press release that went along with this talked about pall of smoke uh, rising out of a ga starburst galaxy. It is an accurate uh, analogy. Uh, when you combine that information with X-ray observations, you find uh, the Spitzer observations here on red. Uh, the blue, uh, this is also comparing with X-ray mapping from the Chandra Space Observatory. Chandra is sensitive to mil gas at temperatures of a million degrees or higher. What you find is uh, essentially this, uh, this interstellar dust is part of uh, an incredible outflow of gas uh, blowing out. Um, and this is an example we call an infrared luminous galaxy uh, and an extreme uh, type of star formation you do not see in the disks of Milky Way or normal galaxies. Um, there are even more, here are two examples of even more extreme objects, the same kind of pr processes as are going on in M82, but scaled up in ARP220, NGC 6240. Uh, the amount of power we're seeing uh, corresponds to about up to 1,000 uh, stars like the sun forming every year. In the Milky Way, about two stars like the sun form every year. Uh, up to these are hundreds of times more stars forming and forming in incredibly compact uh, regions. Um, and uh, here is a diagram just comparing for those who like. On one axis, the total number of stars forming per year, normal galaxies in black. These infrared galaxies like M82 R220 up here, this axis shows the concentration of star formation. The main point of the graph is showing there's a continuum of properties, of factors of billion variation from one to the next. Here's our Milky Way down here in the lower corner. Um, and these objects are up here, uh, incredible in the volume of star formation, but also the concentration as well. I need to finish, so I'm going to uh, sort of come to a couple punchlines and actually close to the end. Um, so what happened? What, what in the world happened to M82 and ARP220 uh, uh, to make them uh, have these violent eruptions of star formation? Well. Uh, it turns out it's gas supply again, but in a very violent way. When you look at images of these objects, uh, these galaxies in, with Hubble, for example, or in space and ask, they don't look normal. They all look highly disturbed. And your intuition would you tell you perhaps these are uh, the results of train wrecks, uh, mergers uh, of galaxies, collisions between galaxies, and that's uh, precisely uh, right. Uh, in the case of M82, uh, here again is a visible light image of M82 and M81. If you observe in hydrogen, cold hydrogen, the very large array, you can see this is the gas uh, around these galaxies. You realize that M81 and M82 are in a very uh, uh, complex menage a trois with a third galaxy here in which gas is being transferred from one and dumping on. So these are events in which... Uh, billions, millions to billions of, of uh, uh, solar masses of cold gas are being uh, funneled into the centers of galaxies. It is igniting into star from, uh, uh, new stars, and that gas is turning into stars as rapidly as nature will allow, essentially what we call one uh, dynamical time. 
Um, the reason this is exciting is the kind of processes we're seeing in these merging galaxies is very reminiscent, both uh, visually and physically, quantitatively, to what you see all the time in the most distant universe. This is uh, images from the deepest image of the sky at visible wavelengths have obtained, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, showing galaxies of the, uh, as they were uh, several billion years ago. And you find at the highest redshift, the most distant galaxies, these sorts of normal galaxies go away, and everything looks merging and peculiar. To some extent, the objects uh, we've been talking about are Rosetta Stones for the early evolution of our own Milky Way and other galaxies. Uh, so what, uh, what does the infrared offer here? Well, um, uh, it turns out that uh, there's a relation I will show you in a moment that bears my name, uh, which shows that the strongest star formation is associated with the densest concentrations of gas and the densest concentrations of dust. So by their very nature, these starbursts will be invisible. And so if you want to get the complete picture in the high redshift universe, the infrared becomes even more important. The problem has been, until the advent of Spitzer and uh, Herschel, it was very difficult to observe this very high redshift universe with the same fidelity in the infrared and submillimeter as you could in visible light. So here is a Hubble image of the first deep field. Here is the same region observed uh, in the redshifted infrared with a ground-based instrument, a scuba telescope, whereas there were 3,000 galaxies observed, detected in this image, there were only three uh, with any confidence in this state-of-the-art, which was until recently a state-of-the-art ground-based image. However, in the last six months, since Herschel trained its eyes on the sky, here is the same region of sky imaged there, um, as said by the members of this team from the Hermes Project. In the first week of observing of Herschel, the number of galaxies in the universe known and measured in the, infra, uh, uh, in the far, redshifted far infrared increased from about 300 to 30,000. And uh, there will be uh, hundreds of thousands observed. So what we are seeing here is essentially we are now able to match up on a galaxy-by-galaxy -galaxy basis these high redshift objects we see in the visible and ultraviolet with the dust emission, and we're finding that most of their energy, in fact, is coming out in the dust. I think I'll skip that um, and go on. Let me summarize and wrap up. Uh, um, uh, so if putting all these things together, what has this taught us about the history of galaxies, the history of the Hubble sequence? I've sort of illustrated here with Spitzer images how star formation changes along the Hubble sequence and using the size of the galaxy to denote the amount of star formation sort of in a graphical way. And you see in the present day universe today, Hubble's sequence is a sequence of, of, of the rate at which new stars are being born with the farther you go on the right, the more stars are formed. You can ask, suppose we looked, and so suppose there were an Edwin Hubble around uh, 8 billion years or 12, maybe 10 billion years ago, what would he have classified the Hubble sequence like then? Here, uh, schematically, is what the tuning fork would have looked like 10 billion years ago. 
the elliptical galaxies today, which are dead, red and dead, not forming any stars to speak of, would be the brightest objects in the universe at that time, forming nearly all of their stars. And in fact, the whole tuning fork, evolutionary nature of the tuning fork, reverses itself. Um, this is a process, manifestation, what we call downsizing, that although these galaxies, uh, late-type galaxies today, excuse me, have the, these are the Priuses of the world and the Volkswagens, they have the most full fuel tanks. Uh, these, uh, these are basically the Hummers of the galaxy world. And of course, if you look back in time, they were very profligate and they were actually more efficient in making stars in the past. We'll skip there. Um, finally, a little advert. Uh, uh, is there a way you can understand this incredible diversity? Uh, um, although there is tremendous dispersion, what looks like a scatter diagram in the star formation properties of galaxies, in fact, um, there is a, a, a pattern, essentially a key that has emerged in the last decade or so, uh, and it was found uh, by our group by correlating the distribution of star formation in galaxies with the amount of cold gas, both atomic and uh, molecular hydrogen. Uh, if you take the same galaxies that were in this last diagram and correlate this star formation intensity with the actual density of gas, what you see is a beautiful correlation emerges the, uh, connecting the normal galaxies, the galaxies like the Milky Way, with the ARP-220s and M82s and the Starbursts and those nuclear rings. In fact, there's one physical sort of mechanism that uh, uh, connects them that is remarkably simple. It's, it's the concentration, not the amount of gas, but the concentration of gas influences the concentration of star formation in a very simple way. It's not a one-to-one -one proportionality. In fact, you compress, it's a power law with about a 1.5 power. You compress the gas a little bit, you get much more star formation as a result. And in fact, you can use these kinds of prescriptions uh, to try to understand theoretically the model, the evolution of galaxies. Um, this is known through no work of mine, I'm sorry, as Kennecott Schmidt Law, um, meaning, I mean, not my idea. The idea of doing this was my idea. The, the idea of naming it that was not uh, mine uh, whatsoever. So we're left, finally wrapped uh, to conclude. Uh, here was the list of questions. Uh, I have to say, really building a theory of galaxy evolution and answering these questions is a task for the next generation of astronomers. Uh, it will take a couple of decades, but I hope you can see we have made uh, some significant a progress, uh, and that progress will continue unabated in the next decade. Final couple slides, uh, what's going to happen next? The next big uh, observatory that will attack this problem is the James Webb Space Telescope. It is a six and a half meter telescope, such a big mirror it has to deploy in space, unfold, um, that will have sharper, ten times sharper images, uh, well, uh, than the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, in the infrared and is optimized for the near infrared. And it has many missions. Uh, one of the primary ones is uh, that uh, to, we want to study the first generation. We want to find those first nuggets of seeds of galaxies. And to do that, these objects are redshifted so far that their visible light is redshifted entirely into the infrared. So we have to build a beefed up an HST on steroids, essentially, to detect these and that's what JWST will do. It will also carry a camera 
with a similar wavelength sensitivity to Spitzer. So it will actually make exquisitely high-resolution images of the, uh, these distant dust in nearby galaxies, distant galaxies, and even individual star-forming clouds. Uh, finally, um, the, the uh, companion to study actually the dust emission fully from these very, very high redshift objects will require going to the sub-millimeter part of the spectrum, the infrared redshifts, even out the dust emission redshifts out of the infrared. And there's array, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, but I should say both of these facilities, JWST, Alma should be ready, a fully operational, we hope, in the 2014 timeframe. And it will take images with sharpness comparable to or better than Hubble and JWST, but of the dust emission. So we will have, uh, be able to apply this whole technique there. So uh, that is the case study. Uh, I apologize, in the outset, I have stopped looking at my watch. I think I've gone a few minutes over uh, what the guideline, but I hope uh, for the trouble uh, you have a little bit better feeling of uh, what opening our eyes to the heat uh, of the universe uh, reveals and a sense of where we are going uh, towards answering one of the uh, truly uh, profound unsolved uh, questions in astronomy, namely the formation and evolution of the largest uh, structures uh, in the universe. Thank you very much. You saw the numerical simulation. Uh, this was the large showing the development of structure in the universe and uh, the development of these structures. And um, I have to say, I've never found a perfectly way, good, uh, accurate, intuitive explanation for it, but it has to do uh, with a combination. Uh, you could imagine if you lived in a static universe and as material collapsed, it would collapse and form round blobs. But you have to remember that the whole universe is expanding. In fact, it's first expanding and slowing down, then it speeds up after that. And it's the, it's the combination of the, uh, the expansion of the universe on large scales with the local gravitational condensation is uh, the part. It's also influenced by uh, the nature of the fluctuations. I talked about quantum fluctuations in density. The, those initial density, those fluctuations aren't all the same size. And in fact, theory uh, predicts uh, a way, essentially waves of uh, a wave spectrum with, with, a, with a very precise shape. And it's actually the variations of the size between the large uh, wiggles and the small wiggles that sort of combine to do that. I suspect uh, Lars Bildstein or one of the theoreticians in the room could do a better job than that, but I think I got the, uh, the essence of it. The question was, what is the density of gas between galaxies? Uh, first of all, I should probably give you a feeling for density of gas even in the, within the galaxy. I don't think I did that. Uh, a tip, through the Milky Way between the stars, a good average value is one atom, one atom per uh, cubic centimeter. Uh, so it's actually better than a laboratory vacuum, uh, but there's lots of centimeters, of course. Uh, between the galaxies, uh, the densities are much lower, but not zero. Um, in fact, the gas uh, pretty much, we think, condenses into those filaments, those uh, follows the dark matter filaments that you saw, filamentary structure. We actually uh, cannot 
uh, see the emission of that gas, but we actually detect it indirectly by seeing uh, its absorption effects on starlight shining through it. And uh, um, it varies uh, immensely, but uh, in the densest, uh, it varies uh, on the scale. Uh, uh, in the interstellar medium, as I say, sort of one atom per cubic centimeter, uh, it is anywhere from, it's typically uh, anywhere from a billion times less uh, in the densest regions, maybe up to uh, within uh, 1,000 times lower. Of course, there's a continuum, and in fact, we believe that today, one of the revelations just of the last few years is a revelation that that, that stuff isn't static. A lot of it is raining, flowing into the uh, galaxy. We actually see clouds of the stuff falling onto our own Milky Way. And of course, by, you know, so it's getting denser. Eventually, they kind of merge in density. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.